Sometimes what we do is we go back in history to understand something of how God works, to understand how he might be uh, working in our generation, the things that he might desire to do in our lives and in our midst. As we were, if we were to go back to July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards began a sermon that he didn't finish. Uh, got partway through, and that's about all that, all that uh, he was able to, uh, to do that, that day. Uh, it was in a period in history known as the Great Awakening, and it was in full swing. Uh, in North America, it, it was, the, the center was really in, in New England as God was moving in people's lives such that uh, they say that during the Great Awakening, there were some 50,000 people who put their faith in Christ in uh, the New England area alone. Over a, a period from 1740 to 1742, the membership in churches went from 25,000 to 50,000 as just uh, an incredible uh, movement of, of God uh, went all uh, over that region. But there was one uh, town by the, named Enfield that had become somewhat notorious for being resistant to that new work of God's spirit. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with it. And they prided themselves in having resisted it. Well, on this particular day, uh, Jonathan Edwards and another group of ministers, they had been traveling to churches in the, in, uh, uh, throughout the area, and they came upon Enfield, and uh, it wasn't Jonathan Edwards' turn to speak that day, but for whatever reason, he was asked to, uh, to fill in. As he did, uh, later, people would describe the scene of this uh, gathered church. They uh, they, they said that <laughs> the atmosphere was thoughtless and vain. Uh, they were not uh, eager to hear the word of God. It was closer to the, uh, the setting of a picnic than it was of a group of people serious and desiring to, uh, to hear from, uh, from God. Well, he preached uh, a now famous sermon, uh, a sermon that he entitles Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And people have studied this sermon throughout uh, various generations, trying to understand the genius of it, the, the power of it. And, and there was much to this sermon that was of, of interest. He used powerful images of uh, the, the, the danger that there was in resisting God. At, at one point, he described uh, walking over this, this cavern with with flames of fire underneath and, and, and all that you had to walk across. If you were walking in sin, walking away from God, it was like the, the boards of, of this little uh, uh, passageway over, over the cavern was made of rotting wood. And at any moment, the, the, the wood could give, give way. Uh, at another point, he, uh, he, he compared sin to a lead weight that drags us down and pulls us towards hell. And yet, it wasn't the imagery, it wasn't the, the finery of the sermon that ultimately had its power. Because he'd actually preached this exact same sermon in his own home church with very little effect, very little response. But on this particular day, 
uh, the response was somewhat remarkable. Uh, as he preached, people started crying out in the congregation as, he, uh, uh, as the words were coming out of his mouth. Uh, there were shrieks of, of horror coming up from the congregation. People started weeping in remorse over their sin. And at a certain point, when the, when the shouts and the tears and the crying from the, from the congregation became louder than he could possibly speak over, he stopped preaching and along with the other ministers that were present, began to go and serve people individually, uh, ministering the grace of God, the forgiveness of God to people who were truly broken over their sins. This is a picture of what God does in revival. Uh, not just in big, large-scale um, revivals like the Great Awakening, but in smaller personal revivals in people's hearts today in groups of people like groups that are gathered here today. He brings a, a deep brokenness over sin. He brings a great remorse over ways that we have grieved the heart of God. But he also brings a humbling to as, as there is a recognition that there is grace and forgiveness and love for unworthy sinners. That's not just the heart of revival. It's not just the heart of the Great Awakening. It's the heart of today's passage. And we have been in this series where we've been looking at, at uh, the, the life and times of a fairly surprisingly unknown king. Not a lot of people, if I, tell me a little bit, tell me 10 things you know about King Josiah. Many people would be like, I'm not sure. Was he that eight-year-old kid thing? Like that's about all people know about King Josiah. He, under him, they, one of the most greatest revivals in Israel's history, uh, perhaps the greatest king in, in all of Israel's history, and yet we know very little about him. And so we've just been walking through 2 Kings uh, and seeing how God worked uh, in his day, trying to understand how God might uh, work revival in our midst. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me there now. Uh, I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, encourage you to, uh, to, to, to bring one next time. Encourage you to download one for your phone. Uh, you, can, uh, you, you can look in the uh, Pew Bible. It's on page 307. And uh, if you keep that in front of you, I'm just going to walk through the text. We want this to be uh, God speaking through his word, not me speaking through my uh, often in inadequate thoughts. So, uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, I'll read from verse 8 to 20. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, 
inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to hold to the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster on this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. This is the word of God. Now, I want to start this morning where this text starts, with a discovery of a lost copy of the scriptures. Because revival can't come until you and I rediscover the book. We need the wisdom and the correction that only God's word can bring. And often, God's word gets lost in a sea of other priorities. And uh, it needs to be rediscovered. So revival won't come until you rediscover the book. Now, if you were with us last time, we saw this, this young king who was, uh, had come to this throne too early for him to really rule adequately, and yet God placed godly advisors around him. He grew up, and, and uh, last time we saw, he, he had commanded for repairs to take place on the temple. Well, as they moved in and began to restore the, uh, the, the, the temple where God might be worshipped, they discovered a, a copy of the scriptures. It was likely a scroll, probably made from parchment, a, a thin uh, leather that was used and bound, uh, uh, and uh, it was probably the co- uh, a copy of the book of De- Deuteronomy. The fact that it needed to be found gives you some idea of the spiritual condition of Israel. It had been under uh, Josiah's father, Manasseh's rule, that for 55 years, the, the uh, nation essentially had turned its back on God. They had gone in the wrong direction and had strayed from uh, him and the help that he might have given. The Bible, which was to be treasured, was instead lost. And often the same thing happens in our day today. We, we, we don't reject the Bible often. We don't dismiss the Bible we just don't give it a place of prominence in our lives. We need to rediscover the book just as they did in his day. 
I love what happens when the high priest Hilkiah gives the book to Shaphan the secretary. Notice it says in verse 8, Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Just that alone is amazing to me. Uh, it, it, he, 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 he set his heart to, uh, to read the scroll. And then when Shaphan reads it, do you know what he does next? Verse 10 says that Shaphan read the whole thing out loud to the king. This, this, I'm convinced, is far different than what might happen today. Because if you and I were to, have, to um, go into the temple, we discover some long-lost scroll. It's, it's a great discovery. It's covered with, with, uh, with dust. It looks really old and impressive. Our first instinct would probably be to take out our cell phones and get a picture with it. Far, probably far down the road, it would, down the list of priorities, would be I'll actually sit down and read this thing. Even if we did sit down and read it, how many of us, honestly, knowing that this scroll, after because we just finished reading it, knowing that it, it, it contains this long list of indictments about the nation and about its leader, the, the incredible judgments that God was going to bring upon them for having turned their backs on him, after, how many of you, after having read that, would then take it to your boss, the king, and read it to him? Here you have this, this picture of the, 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 the prominence that uh, was given to God's word and uh, a, a sense of what happens when, uh, when God works in revival. When was the last time that you, for instance, sat down with the book of Deuteronomy, and, and read the 34 chapters that make it up. When was the last time that you sat down and opened your Bible and read one or two chapters and, and, and carved out the time to make that a regular and daily habit in your life? How many of you, having, having taken the time and, and carved out the time to, uh, to uh, read the, 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 the scriptures like that, how many of you have the guts to share it? To, to read it to your spouse, to read it to your children, to share what you're learning with the people around you. This is what happens when God revives his people. That the word of God takes on a prominence, not only in the gathering of God's people, but in individual people's lives. They begin to take seriously and have this sense of anticipation and expectation with regard to the words of God as, as he would reveal them in Scripture. Now, I mentioned that it was probably the scroll of Deuteronomy that was found. I don't know how long it's been since you read Deuteronomy, but there's some tough passages there. It's a tough book. There are blessings and there are curses. There are these great promises of how God will uh, bring great great hope and blessing when people respond to him in faith and obedience. And there's these terrible descriptions of the judgment that he will bring as people resist, them, resist him and turn their backs on him. You can see the king's reaction when, uh, when, when he hears these words, he hears this book being read to him. He's filled with terror. This isn't just the it wasn't as if Shaman had just, uh, uh, Shaphan had just gone to him and read the 23rd Psalm and talked to about, 
you know, the Lord is your shepherd and, and he'll make you lie down in green pastures. He'll lead you along. No, he, he wasn't just uh, trying to lift him up with these uh, soft promises of God's goodness and blessing. He was digging into a hard book with some hard words and he knew that they were going to involve some challenges to, uh, to the king, to the nation, to where they were going to go. And I, I wonder whether this is what your Bible reading looks like. I, I wonder whether you dig into the hard parts, uh, whether you are, are, are taking time to expose yourself to some of the things that challenge your own life and, and uh, directions, or whether you skate around those sections and camp in those places that would just give you warmth and encouragement and, uh, and promise, but maybe avoid some of those other passages. I also wonder, wonder whether when you move and you're looking for a church, whether you're looking for a church to tell you what you already know and believe and like, or whether you're looking for a church that will dig into some of the hard passages of Scripture, some of, allow you to be exposed to some of the hard teachings of Scripture that you might be strengthened by them. Because ultimately, it's only when we hear God's truth, both the good and the bad, that we get the help that we need to make the changes that we so we, we so need. So we need to hear both the good and bad. And that's where I'd like to turn next. And to consider how we respond to the good news and the bad news of Scripture. We not only need to rediscover the book, and for some of us, maybe that's, that's really where you're at right now. Your, your book has gotten lost somewhere. Uh, it's, it's gathering dust somewhere, and you need to rediscover that and put it in the place that it deserves. But once you do that, you'll realize that the book contains some bad news and some good news, and we need to know how to respond to both. Whenever I tell my wife I've got good news and I've got bad news, I kind of want to tell her the good news first, and she's always like, no, tell me the bad news first. So let me get that over with. And so uh, that's actually where our passage goes this morning. So we're going we're gonna to start with the bad news. Revival won't come until we're broken by the bad news. Like people living in denial who, who avoid those sections and those things and those words that they don't want to hear and never get better, never change, uh, the same is true for Christians. We can sift and ignore the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. But revival won't come until we're broken by the bad news. Now, when we left off in, in today's passage, we had that scene where Shaphan gets the courage to go up to the king and read the scroll and tell him all of the mess that the condition of, of the nation that this passage uh, really does as it, as it shines a light on just how far they've strayed from God. So we've seen Shaphan's courage. What we don't know is, how is the king going to respond? What's his, his reaction going to be as he reads out this scroll? And so verse 11 gives the response. It says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. 
Now, tearing your clothes was a sign of mourning. It, it, was, what you do, it was what you did when someone came and told you their family member had died. When someone came and told you that there had been a, 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 a death in a, from a close friend. It was something that you would do when your nation was in mourning. They didn't f- bring down the flag to half-mast. People would, would walk around in sackcloth and ashes and they would tear their clothes. But for a king to do it was even more pronounced because even today this is the case, but in, in, in those days even more so, a king's clothes, his robes communicated his dignity, his glory. They, they were an expression of uh, his, uh, his, his status and his honor. And for him to tear the clothes like this was a dramatic statement of his brokenness over sin, uh, of just uh, having felt the full weight of uh, that sin upon him. And it, 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 it broke him up inside. And, and it's a reminder that the Bible should stir something in us. It should move us. It, it, should, it, it should cause remorse over sin. It should cause a brokenness in our hearts. Later in verse 19, we're told that the king's heart was penitent. Uh, penitent is one of those words that we don't use very often, but it means soft and tender. It's the opposite of hard and, and stubborn. A, a penitent heart is one that receives, that welcomes the hard news that takes the difficult as well as the good. His heart was penitent. At the end of verse 19, it describes the king weeping before God. Here you have the most powerful man in the nation, and he is crying, undone, weeping on his, feet, on, on his knees before the Lord, feeling not only his own sins, but the sins of his ancestors, the sins of the nation seeing how deeply he has offended God, how far they have strayed from him. And it, it, it breaks him inside. It's a picture of the heart that God desires in his people. David famously prayed in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God wants people to be wrecked over their sin, to feel the weight of it, to feel just how far we have strayed from him. A hard heart doesn't do that. It it can't hear. It won't listen. It doesn't want to change. And so nothing seems to get through. It doesn't feel the things that God feels. And for a picture for this, it's unfortunately that Unfortunate, you don't have to go any farther than Josiah's son. Because this great king, this humble king, this repentant king, had a son who later gained the throne. Listen to how it describes in Jeremiah 36. Listen how Jeremiah recorded his son's response to the word of God. As Jehudi, which is one of the court officials, read three or four columns from the scriptures, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. 
He hears the word of God. And he says, I don't like that one. Takes his knife out, cuts the scroll, cuts the scroll throws it into the fire. He reads some more. Don't like that one either. Cuts it out, throws it into the fire. Until he comes to the end of the scroll, he has taken the entire scroll piece by piece, cut it out with a knife, and thrown it to be burned. So that somehow he doesn't have to hear those words of conviction. So that they don't get through. And very seldom are we at that point of such flagrant, get rid of it, when it comes to God's word. And yet we can, through our attitudes and our resistance, do very much the same thing. We can take the word of God and just cut out those pieces that we don't want to listen to. The parts that would, would speak to us, would desire to warn us or correct us or change us. When was the last time you felt Josiah's kind of remorse over your sin? When was the last time that God's word really got through to you? Got through to you so that you, you became almost as disturbed as you think God was about the sin in your life or the spiritual condition of your heart. If you don't hear him anymore and if he doesn't ever seem to get through, then either you just somehow have it all together so much that God just doesn't have any, like, he comes to you and think, wow, you've, you're knocking it out of the park. You got it all together. I, I just don't have anything more to add. Maybe that's the case with you. I, I don't know. I don't know your life. But maybe if that's not the case, maybe when he comes and he desires to speak, you've got your fists up and you've covered over your ears and you're just not willing to receive. Are there things that he said? Are there areas where he has nudged you? Are there opportunities that you have, he has given that you have just said, don't go there, God. I'm not, I'm not willing to deal with that one. I'm not open to that. Brian Chappelle gives us a picture of how different things are when God revives his people. It's a, another uh, scene from The Great Awakening. Uh, it's another scene from a, a period of revival. And at this one, there was a, uh, it was Jonathan Edwards again, and uh, yet it wasn't a, a, a sermon or a preaching time. It was a prayer meeting. And for this particular prayer meeting, there were some 800 men had gathered. And they had gathered to pray for, for God to continue the fire of rev revival in their midst, to continue to bring change and, and to stir in, in the lives of God's people. And just before this prayer meeting started, uh, there was a woman who got a note uh, passed and passed along to Jonathan Edwards as he went to the podium. And on that note, she was um, making a prayer request. And she said, um, would you pray for my husband? I'd, I'd like you to pray for my husband because he has become unloving, prideful, and difficult. Only she didn't sign the note, and she didn't mention his name. And Jonathan Edwards, realizing that this was a serious prayer request, and he wanted to give attention to it, but also recognizing there's 800 men gathered here, and in the size of town, 
there's a good chance that he's, he's here. That, that this, this unloving, proud, and difficult husband is actually in their midst. And so he made the bold request, still not knowing his name, he made the bold request that this person identify himself so that everyone could pray for him. And so without, without a name, he, she, he, he described, he read out the note. Uh, there's, a, there's a woman who, whose husband has become proud and unloving and difficult, and uh, she's asked for prayer for him. I just, if, if you're here, I'd like you to raise your hand. At, at which point, 300 men raised their, raised their hands. And the other 500, to be honest, were probably not, not uh, being completely honest. But this is what happens in, when God stirs people in revival. There's a tenderness of, of the heart that is open to receiving the hard news, that is open to agreeing with God about the condition of your heart and your soul. A willingness to own sin, to recognize and agree with God about, about these things and to say, yeah, that's me. That, that, that's what's happening in my heart and I need help too. This is what happens when God stirs in revival and brings a brokenness over the bad news, a brokenness over sin. So we said revival won't come until we rediscover the book. Got to get it out. Got to give it the place in your life that it deserves. But just getting it out and hearing it or reading it isn't enough because often, in fact, let's be honest, millions of people in Thousands of churches, Sunday by Sunday, will hear the word of God and it never gets through because that, there's that hardness, there's that resistance. And, and so we've, we said, you, you don't just hear it, you don't just read it, you need to be broken by the bad news. But if we just left it there, that would just have identified a problem It wouldn't have pointed to a solution. And so we need to respond to the good news. And here the message is that revival won't come until we're humbled by the hope of that good news. Now, when we left off, King Josiah was weeping over his sin. He was broken genuinely by all that he had done and all that the nation was responsible for. But it's critical what happened after that. Because I'm reading that and I'm wondering, okay, you've seen the problem. What's going to be your solution? Are you at this point going to try and fix yourself? Are you going to do some kind of do-it-yourself religion, salvation by, by good intentions? And if you're feeling this this morning, I, you, you need to ask yourself, when God brings conviction and you recognize the weight of your sin, what is your next first reaction? Do you just say, I'm going to try harder? I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I, I'm, I resolve to do better. All of those responses, while seemingly, seemingly good and, and well-intentioned, are actually dangerous because what they're saying is, I can do this without God. Thank you very much. And so you cling to that pr pride and independence that says, I can do it without inviting the help of the one who only can bring about the change that you need. I'm not saying we're totally passive in the process, but we need to first invite uh, his help. 
In verse 13, it says, uh, it, it gives us a picture of uh, Josiah's response. He says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. I love that Josiah recognizes, and this is what happens in revival, he knows he can't save himself. He knows that he can't fix himself. He knows that he needs God's mercy on repentant sinners if there is to be any hope. And so he sends a delegation to inquire of the Lord. It's interesting who he goes to inquire of. He goes to inquire of a prophetess that you've probably never heard of because uh, this prophetess named Huldah doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture except in connection with this, this event. Scripturally speaking, she's kind of a nobody. It's like, who on earth is she? And, and that's important because there was actually a prophet at the time that you know an awful lot better than Huldah. There was a in our minds, a very well-known prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was living at this very same time and they could just as easily have gone to him. They didn't. Jeremiah was a prophet and if you read his writings, he, he gets the big book deal. He gets, like, we, we look back and think, Jeremiah, he wrote that big, huge, one of the great prophetic writings of the Old Testament. But if you read what Je- Jeremiah says about himself, he says, like, I'm kind of a nobody. Nobody listens to me. Like, wherever I preach a sermon, people are just, like, walking the other way. Like, no, nobody seems to, to, to do what I say. Like, I, I, I try and deliver the word of the Lord. I'm trying to be faithful, and nobody seems to want anything to do with it. Well, he's a guy who, like, thousands of years later, we're, we're looking back and thinking, boy, that Jeremiah, incredible, the book, that, you know. Whereas Hulda, at the time, she doesn't get a book deal. She doesn't get any, any kind of special accolades in Scripture, but if you were there at the day, you would go, like, if you want to really find out what the Lord's saying, go to Huldah. Like, she's, she knows the word of the Lord. She will deliver it faithfully, and, and that's what happens here. But it's just this interesting little aside how God often will work in people's lives, and they don't really know the full impact of, of what they've done. Huldah's thinking, I didn't get a book. I, like I'm, and yet Jeremiah's thing. I got well. I've, I've done a lot of writing, but nobody seems to listen to me. And often that that's what it's like with God's people. That He humbles people that He uses. He uses people in weakness so that His strength can be more prominent. And and it's it's that picture of uh, of God's strength in our, in our in our weakness and how He uses humble people. Now when they go to Huldah. She doesn't pull any punches. She, she delivers the word of the Lord. And if, if you look in verses 16 and 17, her message is essentially, God is, all of that judgment that you've been reading about in the book of De- Deuteronomy that God said would come if you turn your back on him, it's really coming and it's really going to be as bad as you thought it was. In verse 19, she says, though, because you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place, and then, down at the end of the, the verse, I also have heard you. Josiah, this judgment is really coming and it's going to be just as terrible as I said it was, but you've humbled yourself. You've been broken over your sin and you've come to me for mercy and I've heard you. Then in verse 20, she speaks promises of peace and protection for him. The judgment's going to come but he's going to be spared it. 
He will live his life in peace, but he is right to be fearful for the fate of the nation. God responds in mercy to those who humble themselves before him and his word. And this is always how God works. This is God's pattern in Scripture. This is God's pattern in our lives. That's why he says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's those who have the humility to say to the Lord, enough. I, I, I've, I'm tired of going my own way. I'm tired of just walking in independence from you and turning my back on you. I'm done running the show. I want what you want. God says in Isaiah 66 too, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God looks for humility in us because if we don't humble ourselves, we can't hear him. His, his word can't get through. If we don't humble ourselves, we don't think that we need any rescuing, thank you very much. If we don't humble ourselves, we, we say, I think I got this covered, Lord. I don't need your rescuing. I don't really need what Jesus did on the cross. I don't really need your word. I think I kind of got covered. Like, I'm doing okay. Until we're humbled by his grace. Until we recognize our weakness. Until we know it is only in him that we can find strength. Even as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm sure there are people in this room that are living in deep grooves of habitual sin, and it, it keeps you from hearing. It, it keeps you from hearing the correction, hearing the warnings. It just doesn't, doesn't penetrate because the resistance is up. The defenses are there. I'm just as confident that there are many others whose sin might not be as flagrant. Maybe you're saying, um, like I'm, I'm kind of okay. But your heart and its condition is wrapped in this cloak of complacency. And it just, you don't, it never seems to be about you. It's always, boy, I wish, I wish Joe was here. He, this, this sermon really would have been good for him. It's never about you. It, it's, it, it's never about the condition of your heart. It never seems to stir change in you. God's desire is that we would be humbled, that we would be broken of our complacency. And so as we close, I, I want to just do something. I just want to, I want to encourage you to picture Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. I want you to consider as you just ponder all that he endured for our sakes Consider the agony that he's endured through the beatings. Feel the humiliation that he has, he, he has as he is exposed to the crowds. Feel the indignity that he bore. And then ask yourself, did he endure all of this 
Did he die? Did he suffer so that we could stay the same? So that we could continue on unchanged? So that we would remain in our pride and our self-sufficiency and our complacency and our resistance and our independence and never be changed by him. God desires to set us free from all that. Jesus died so that we might be humbled by his grace, that we would be so overwhelmed by his love that it would move us to respond. That, that it would stir within us a, a motivation that goes beyond rules, goes beyond peer pressure, that goes beyond religion, and, go, and, and goes to the very heart of who we are as human beings, desiring to be changed and transformed because of his great love for us. And it's a, and it's a love that comes into our lives after we have recognized the depth of our sin, broken over how far short we fall. And to recognize that there is a God who loves us even still. A God who would die in our place that we might be set free. That God who invites us into relationship. And who desires by his spirit even now to change and transform us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we pray that you would visit us with revival that you would soften our stubborn hearts. We pray that you would free us from complacency and give us hearts to feel your conviction. Help us, Father, not to bury your word in busy lives given over to vanity and entertainment. For those here this morning who are stuck in deep grooves of habitual sin, Would you set them free? May they be broken over the sins that break your heart and give them humility to say enough and to get the help they need, the help that you graciously give. And Father, may we be humbled by your grace, humbled by a God who loved us enough to give his only son for us, humbled by a Savior who died for us, humbled by a salvation we don't deserve, humbled that we might live life in gratefulness for all you've done. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.